this morning, we're uh, really privileged to have from Santa Barbara, California, Craig uh, Parton. Uh, I have not met Craig until about 45 seconds ago to shake his hand, but I know him by reputation, uh, and he is considered to be a very, very fine trial lawyer uh, in what I believe to be the largest firm in, in that part of the country. Uh, but he's also a devoted Christian, uh, and he has not only writes uh, for law journals, uh, he's also written some uh, theological essays and books. Uh, his books are in the library. I mean, excuse me, they are in the bookstore. They are in the back. Beg your pardon. Well, so we make it easy. So the books are in the back, even uh, as, as we speak. So just want to lift that up to you. Craig will also, and I, and I speak now specifically uh, to lawyers, he will be with us. He's preaching Monday and Tuesday in the Linton series and also the more evening at Latimer House in Mountain Brook. He will be there at 7 o'clock. So you lawyers would like to come uh, and bring one of your lawyer friends, that would, be, that would be wonderful. I don't want to spend any more time in the introduction. I want to turn it over uh, to Craig Parton. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Uh, dear Lord. Thank you for your servant, Craig. Uh, we ask that you would fill him with your grace now, uh, that he may be uh, inspired to speak words that are acceptable in your sight. And we pray that you would open our ears to hear exactly what you want us to hear. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Craig, come on up, buddy. It's all for you. Are you on now? I am. Okay. I am on. Uh, don't be uh, put off by the fact that Monday night is a group of lawyers. Those of you who were thinking of showing up Monday night and then heard there were a group of lawyers there and exited out of your sights, don't. Uh, because it's actually going to be a follow-up on what we're going to cover today. Who would want to join a group of lawyers? Who, who <laughs> reminds me of a lawyer joke. No, 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 no. There will be enough of those Monday night. A couple of things I want to mention to you. You have an outline of the things that we're going to cover uh, this morning very rapidly. I'll hopefully have a chance for a couple of questions uh, from you at the end. Uh, we also have a brochure there for the International Academy of Apologetics, which has been going on for 15 years in Strasbourg, France. Um, this is a program that helps uh, equip laymen in the defense of the faith. This is not oriented toward having to have a Ph.D. to show up. We've had everything from high school seniors to people with very little formal education to Ph.D.s to seminary students. Jacob Smith, who's been here, I'm not sure I should use the name. Some of you may get up and leave now. Who knows? Uh, Jacob Smith was with us for two years, defended a thesis uh, in front of us his second year there. Uh, so it's, it's designed to equip laity in the defense of the faith, to deal with the objections that you get every day. I don't care if you're in Alabama or my town in California. The situation is definitely secular. Uh, that is the prevailing zeitgeist in the world and in America today. And these are objections that you will run up against every day and in every place that you go to in society. So we've designed the academy to cover uh, the subjects that you see there. Um, and we cover those in four-hour classes. They're not taught in French. Uh, the politics is not French, you'll be grateful for. Uh, just the academy is there for cultural reasons and some of the things that we do in a medieval city that uh, Calvin founded the university in, Luther was in. 
Uh, it's got some wonderful theological connections, architectural, historical connections uh, that we make available to you. Um, but the classes are all in English, all taught by professors that can communicate in the defense of the faith, so we welcome your attendance. Another thing that's back in the back that's free, I always note this, I speak a lot to Baptists, so you have to make clear what's free and what's not. The Baptists tend to take everything as free. Um, you're more formal and proper, wouldn't dare think of doing that. Uh, there's some catalogs back there of further resources in the defense of the faith. There's a book catalog. Um, my Canadian publisher has got my stuff back there in one of the catalogs. Another, I think the best publisher in the defense of the faith of the laity today is that publisher back there. And there's a number of books on topics related to everything from uh, scientific apologetics, the defense of the faith in the world of scientific reasoning, uh, legal apologetics, um, uh, literary apologetics, and the whole gamut there. So pick those up. They're back there, and uh, there's no, no charge for those. Now, you should have in front of you an outline relating to what we're going to cover very briefly uh, today. This is a very short segment that we cover as called the Apologetical Task Today in Strasbourg, uh, which is a four-hour course on why we need to defend the faith. You'd think that's a silly question. Of course we need to defend the faith. But as you're going to find out, there's a lot of people that think this is a worthless activity for a, ver a variety of reasons. So we want to talk about what apologetics or the defense of the faith is, why defend the faith, and how. I know how sounds like, what is this, consumerism? We're going to you know, paint between the dots. We're going to talk about some general approaches in the defense of the faith in dealing with secularized unbelief. The sermons uh, Monday and Tuesday both deal with how our Lord dealt with evidence and requests for evidence. He specifically dealt with this in one very important passage. Did Jesus poo-poo people who asked for evidence of His deity? And then we're going to look at how the apostles dealt with requests for evidence. In a, a, a sermon on Tuesday on Paul goes to Harvard. So these are going to be all connected up with what we're going to do for just a few minutes here this morning. So first we want to look at what apologetics is and what it is not. What is apologetics? Apologetics actually comes straight from the biblical text, 1 Peter 3.15, where the apostle, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, be ready always to give a defense for the hope that is within you yet with meekness and reverence. Be ready to give a defense. Apologia. The, the Greek word for defense is exactly where we get apologetics. Now, some of you may have the view that apologetics is learning to apologize. I'm so sorry I'm a Christian. I know it's mindless and stupid, but I believe it anyway because I was brought up that way. That is not apostolic defense of the faith. It is fact-centered. It is evidentiary-centered. It is focused on the cross of Jesus Christ. His death for the sins of the world. His resurrection for our justification. That's what apostolic defense of the faith is. It calls people to check out evidence. It doesn't run from evidence. It did not happen in a corner, the apostles say. 1 Peter 3.15 is the biblical basis. Apologetics arises right from the text. 
two things about apologetics. It is to give a defense. And secondly, is to be done with gentleness and meekness or reverence for people we are talking to. Apologetics has a bad reputation. Some of you suffered, suffered through an approach to apologetics where all you learned were the traditional proofs for the existence of God. The ontological argument from being. Have you ever met anyone who asked you, about the ontological argument for the existence of God. Okay, Anselm had fun with that in the Middle Ages, but not a lot of people walking around today on the bus will say, by the way, I'm interested in the argument from being. Could you give me a snazzy answer? So apologetics in some circles is reduced to formal proofs for the existence of God. Strictly formal. We don't poo-poo these. We have an entire course at Strasbourg taught on them. I teach the traditional proofs. I think they have value. The, the contingency argument is a, still a wonderful argument from Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas. But the traditional proofs are never Christological. And last time I checked, it takes more than simple belief in God for us to be saved. It's specific belief that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died an atoning death for the sins of the world, and rose again for our justification. So, apologetics has a bad reputation in some circles. People think the only people who do apologetics are those interested in traditional proofs. And intellectuals. You have to, be, you have to study intellectual things. Um, we do recommend you read and be a wide reader in the defense of the faith. And you come to Strasbourg, we'll give you a long list of things to read. We think the more you read in more areas, the more avenues for discussion with unbelievers you will have. But apologetics isn't for intellectuals. It is a calling and is biblically commanded to all people. It used to be one of the three main branches of all theology. There was study in systematic theology. There was study, secondly, in ethics. And then there was study in apologetics. Some of the greatest apologetical work was done in periods of time that the Christian church was in its heyday, was the strong foundation of Western culture. And seminaries trained people up in the defense of the faith. Now, I'm not going to beat up on any of your particular seminaries. I'm Lutheran theologically. I'll beat up on mine. Um, we hardly train anyone in apologetics anymore in, in formal theological training. We train them in systematic theology and dogmatics in preaching, but very little bit in reasoning and persuading the unbeliever that the claims of Christianity can be checked out evidentially and can be verified. So, Apologetics has, in many cases, a poor reputation today. You're fortunate out of the Episcopalian Anglican tradition, the greatest defenders of the 20th century came. Uh, you've got Lewis. Uh, you've got uh, Tolkien from the Anglo-Catholic tradition. Dorothy Sayers, G.K. Chesterton from the Catholic tradition, but from England. All of these are the greatest defenders of the faith today in writing that exist. None of them and no offense to, to the, the formal clergy, none of those people had formal theological training. 
So if you're thinking, I can't do that, you have to be specially trained to do it. It's not the case. It's not the case. Um, my profession is a trial lawyer. I do that 70 hours a week. Uh, apologetics is something that I have been interested in and studied um, as, as time has uh, allowed me to do. But it's not something for simply a professional trained class. That's what apologetics is. It's defending the faith to all who listen. And it's getting common ground with those people. It's finding what the objections are of the people that you're around and responding to their objections. It's not simply preaching. One great mistake Lutherans make, Lutherans equate apologetics with preaching. Guess who does the preaching? The pastor. Guess who then therefore gets to do all apologetical endeavor? To the extent it's done, it's done by the trained clergy in Lutheran circles. Apologetics is not simply preaching. That's the Lutheran error. Apologetics is not simply doing systematic theology either. That's the Calvinist error. My goal here is not to irritate everyone, but you'll find that that, that kind of happens. That's the Calvinist error. If you find people doing systematic theology and calling it apologetics, oftentimes they're Calvinists. Apologetics is not simply laying out what the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation. Apologetics is getting to the cross of Christ as efficiently, effectively, and in response to an unbeliever's questions as is appropriate to do in the situation. It is not systematic theology. And finally, apologetics is not merely giving your testimony. Now, I am around a lot of evangelicals. I'll have to say probably 85% of the people who come to Strasbourg are evangelicals. Uh, the rest are Episcopalians, Lutherans, uh, people from more Reformation tradition. Why do evangelicals come to Strasbourg? Because they're interested in evangelism. Pentecostals particularly. They, they are always interested in who to talk about the Lord with. That's kind of the situation. But apologetics in those circles oftentimes reduces to giving your story, your testimony. Well, what's wrong with telling your story? I hate to put it this way, but your story is not the gospel. <laughs> Minor problem with it. Your story, and if you want to talk about you when you talk to an unbeliever, I highly suggest it. I highly suggest the topic be your sin, your rebellion, your hatred of God, and your rescue by Christ's finished work at Calvary's cross. That's common ground with the unbeliever. Guess why? They know you're a miserable sinner. And those of you here who don't think you're a miserable sinner, they know it. And that's the most dangerous kind of person to be, one who thinks that they're all out there in sin and we're over here in a different level of holiness. We are sinners fighting against this until the day they stick you in the ground. That's the nature of the battle we have with the old Adam to the end. So, apologetics is not systematic theology. It's not preaching. It's not giving your testimony. And it's the basis of all effective mission work that there is. It's figuring out where people are and bringing the gospel of Christ 
to them specifically. So, what is it precisely that apologetics is defending? The gospel, contrary to a lot of other formal apologetic stuff that you might read, we're interested in defending Christ and Him crucified for sinners. Well, what then is the gospel? Rod Rosenblatt, who I understand you had here, the only reason I agreed to come is because you had Rod not just once, which some people make the mistake doing, but twice. I figured any group that is that subject to allowing themselves to be subject to Rod Rosenblatt twice are my kind of people. Rod defined the gospel this way. Christ died for sinners and you qualify. The gospel is all about what was accomplished for us in spite of us. In spite of our disobedience. In spite of our rebellion. The gospel is not about your self-improvement. It's not about Jesus as life coach. Jesus as personal trainer. Jesus as miracle advisor. It's not about ethics. It's not about making Birmingham more moral for the Lord. I'd rather we maximize the preaching of the Gospel and let it have its impact on people. It's not about making it more moral. And it's not about turning America back to the left or to the right. It's about Christ. The Gospel's all about what was done for us and in spite of us. As Rod said, it's all about what happened 2,000 years ago, about a 20-minute walk from the center of Jerusalem from about noon to three. That is how we do apologetics. Not just we, not just the academy or me. It's apostolic. And you'll see that in the sermons. Now you have to come to the sermon. You weren't planning on coming to the sermon. There's a free lunch. That made it better. Okay. All right. And the Gospel isn't even... I'll mention one thing finally... The gospel isn't even about your acceptance of it. This irritates Baptists um, because the altar call is critical. It was all about what you decided to say yes. Well, actually, you find out that the Lord brings and gives what He requires, saving faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You're saved by grace through faith, and that's not of yourself. Even your saving faith is preserved and fostered by the Lord Himself through the preaching of His Word and the administration of His sacraments. That's how He grew Christians from ever. That's how He's doing it today in Birmingham, the same way. And in the law, for example, for just a last comment, in the law, a pardon is complete from the moment the executive grants it, not when it's accepted by the pardoned criminal. There's actually case law on this of people who refuse to pardon. Not the brightest bulbs. <laughs> they all live in my town in California. Look at they're getting three squares, roof over their head. They figured you know, we can reject a pardon. The pardon is complete when it's announced by the executive. It is final. The benefits, of course, come from the acceptance of the pardon. Put it crassly. I can have a million dollars in your bank account. That can be true and objectively the fact. You are a wealthy person. But if you never draw on that account, you will remain and die a pauper. 
The gospel isn't about your acceptance. It's all about what's been done for you. Law should precede gospel. We never take away from the, the discussion of sin. I have a lot of people, oh, you can't mention sin to an unbeliever. Really? Really? The Christian church is the only place that doesn't talk about it now many times. The unbeliever talking about it all the time. Movies, everything else. Sin. Yeah. Rebellion. I, I, you take the unbeliever where they're at. Let's just go with your moral conscience. I'll do C.S. Lewis with them. You don't even hold up what we think is the right thing to do. Forget the Ten Commandments. We're condemned by our own conscience. The Gospel is important to bring. Obviously, law first precedes Gospel. Law tells us about our inability to merit salvation. The Gospel talks about all being done fully for us. And to confuse those two is an absolute disaster. You give law to people and call it Gospel and you destroy them. Well, what is it we're defending? And this is the last thing under the first point. What is it that we're defending? We're defending what Lewis calls the Gospel or mere Christianity. The basic central themes of Christianity. Put it this way. If what you're spending most of your time talking about to an unbelieving friend is not in the Apostles' Creed, you're down the wrong road. I said most of what... Sometimes unbelievers will say, I want to talk about X, Y, and Z. That's fine. That's an appropriate place. They set the terms in apologetics, not us. Right? It's what your friends are interested in talking about. It's being prepared to give a reason when you're asked. It's not setting the agenda. And sometimes they may ask about other things. But it's not defending, for example, six-day creationism. You're not required to do that as a presentation of the Gospel. I have a feeling the thief on the cross had the most absurd views of creation and probably end times theology that had ever existed. But he was saved because he threw himself on the dying cross and Savior of the world on Calvary's cross for the forgiveness of his sins. To present the Gospel is not to defend the particular idiosyncrasies of your own religious position. Uh, for Lutherans, it's requiring buffets. No. Um, what we call potlucks. That's it. Potlucks. It's the Germanic thing. Everyone has to go to a potluck to be saved. Um, nor defending a certain view of what the Lord did at the beginning of time. You want to have a real argument? Have an argument amongst folks about how exactly it all started. Okay? You can argue that till the cows come home. You can even make someone a theist through arguments. And the traditional proofs do that. And people can die a theist. Which doesn't particularly help anyone because if you check in the book of James, the devil has theistic belief. Does the devils also believe and tremble? They at least tremble. It's not any aspect of saving faith that you simply only believe in God. Six-day creation is and in, in what God was doing at the beginning of time is not part of the presentation of the Gospel. We do scientific apologetics at Strasbourg. We've had Angus Manuge. We've had Oliver Wilder Smith is doing it this year. Uh, you will get all you want on science and the defense of the faith. It's an important topic, but it's not to be confused with the presentation of the Gospel. 
nor are we to speculate about what weekend the Lord is going to return. Usually three-day weekend, Labor Day would be convenient. Um, Apparently, a number of preachers know more about this topic than our Lord Himself when He was on this earth. Uh, In His human nature, He was restricted on that one topic. He was not given information on the moment of His return. There's no suggestion that in glory at the right hand of the Father, He knows the time of His return now. But while He was in earth, He was limited in some ways, and that was one way. Some Christians think that's part of the presentation of the Gospel, talking about what's going to happen at the end of time. It is not. So what apologetics is, what it is not, that's what you have. The book back there, Defense Never Rest, deals with this more in detail. Number two, number two, why? Why defend the faith at all? Because it's apostolic and biblically commanded. Not just 1 Peter 3.15. But you find this pattern throughout the works of the apostles in the book of Acts. Go to Acts 26 sometime and see how Paul deals with the defense of the faith before Festus and Agrippa in defending Christ crucified. He regularly gets to the resurrection. He is careful always to present Jesus Christ and Him crucified in the resurrection. Acts 17, Paul at Mars Hill. A great example of the apologetical task being done um, within a secularized cultural situation. That's Acts 17 for Paul. It's biblically based work. You have in, um, in 1 Kings 18, you can talk about that as being the Old Testament area of apologetical endeavor, where Elijah has a little battle with the prophets of Baal. And Elijah says, let's do this evidentiary way, okay? Baal prophets, let's see, let's count you. 400, 450 versus 1. Seems fair. I'll take that on exactly on that basis. Let's take a bull, each of you, slice it up, put it on an altar, and you can pray that your God will send fire. And I'll give you all day. Let's just to make this fair. They do, they run around, they beat themselves up, they slice themselves They're all done. Elijah mocks them during this time. And then finally at the end, Elijah says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Slice it up. We're going to put stones around it. We're going to pour water three times around this. It's going to be a beach under that bowl. A beach. He prays. The Lord sends fire down. Poof. Over. Evidentiary attestation that he was a prophet speaking in God's behalf. You could check that out in an evidentiary way. We defend the faith because it's biblically commanded and we have examples of precisely this being done in Scripture. But there's a couple of other reasons we should be involved in the defense of the faith. The situation today is both secularized and pluralized. Pluralistic and secular. Secular and pluralistic. By secular, we simply mean the foundations of Western culture the biblical foundations in law and architecture and art and in so many ways are no longer the dominant ideas of our culture. That has been the case uh, probably for 300 years. Uh, The beginnings of secularism and we don't have a chance to go through the details of how that developed. 
We'll do that in Strasbourg when you show up there for the culinary issues. You have that in between Fagwa and the Chateauneuf du Pape. It's a glorious, I mean, it's transcendent for you. Yeah, there, you there you go. It's ruined some of your concentration now, just thinking of that. But the beginnings of secularism come in the 18th century with the first critical approaches to Scripture. Instead of standing under Scripture and learning from Scripture, the first efforts at higher critical approaches of criticizing Scripture, finding problems with it, it's very difficult to learn from something that you think is full of errors and contradictions. Right? It certainly is. And that happened for... Uh, in the 17th, 18th century particularly, the results of that kind of work were the loss of any clear doctrine of God in the 19th century and finally the loss of any clear understanding of man's value. This is a logical, necessary progression. We don't have time to talk about why it is, but ultimately the foundation for the value of man is either revealed transcendently and can be defended as being given from God, or it's up to us to decide each other's value. We have a very bad track record of doing so. Very bad. We have a section in Strasbourg on um, the defense of the faith and human rights, and that is precisely the problem. People don't know how to defend and, and make uh, reasonable their starting points in human rights. And as a result of that, We've had all kinds of chaos. It's a secular situation. And secondly, it's pluralistic, which just means there's a diversity of beliefs all over now in culture. You can't move away from this. I don't care where you are. It moves in next door. Uh, my town has over 200 religions in it. We have druids in Santa Barbara. I mean, I don't all the time run into a druid. I think that's kind of unique, but we have all kinds of new age philosophies and jingle jangles and, of course, all the other Scientologists and Islam and um, Mormonism and all the other ones out there. The fact of the matter is there are a variety of voices speaking to the unbeliever, all saying they have truth. How do you sift through comp competing arguments that they have the truth. Now, this happens in the New Testament. I'll give it to you in the sermon. I'm not going to give you the sermon. I'm not. I'm not going to give you the sermon. This happens in the New Testament, though. And it isn't approach that you see the apostles saying, look, that's a really good argument. Just believe it and you'll find out it's true. You'll get a burning in the bosom. Like Joseph Smith said you'd get. You don't find this in the New Testament. You find them appealing to external work. It's a pluralistic situation and there's a diversity of viewpoints out there and people screaming from the housetops, believe me, 99.9% .9 of those efforts cannot be checked out factually in any way. They are simply have to be accepted and you find out that they work existentially. They, they will make your life better. I hate to be the one to bring this news, but Mormons appear to have nicer family lives than we do. Th this is not just the bastion of Christian theology. Other people have figured this out. Dr. Phil can give you good advice. There's lots of stories out there that can improve 
your life. There's lots of pluralistic um, situation in terms of a variety of belief systems, none of which ask you to check the evidence. Or if they do, they're in big trouble. They're in big trouble. Next time somebody goes, knock, 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 knock. Hi, I'm here from a religious position. You ask them, I'd really like to read the evidence for your position. Okay, I'd like to see externally. What is the text? What is the evidence, the factual basis for your position? And the answer is, well, you just have to try it and you'll like it. Well, look, life is very long. If I do it that way, why don't I just alphabetize all the religions? I'll start with A and see if it works. By the time I get to your position, I might be so jaded psychologically, I wouldn't know truth if it had a sign on it by then. So, we need a better way to discern what the truth is. We tried to do that in Religion on Trial, which was written for the unbeliever, starting with assuming the least amount of anything. One principle, if you get nothing else from this time this morning, when talking to unbelievers, assume the least and prove the most, which is not popular in Christian circles. We like to require the unbeliever to assume our entire worldview at the outset. This is a big mistake. You assume the least and seek to prove the most. So, Why defend the faith is biblically commanded. It's a secular and it's a pluralistic situation. So the church, segue to number three, the church is defending the faith, right? It's happening all over. Apologetics is having a renaissance in Christian circles. Not particularly. Not particularly. There's reasons Christians do not defend the faith. And I won't spend a lot of time on this I'll put them in two very brief categories. There are moral reasons people don't do apologetics and there are intellectual reasons people don't defend the faith or do apologetics. The moral reason is usually associated with uh, pietism. Uh, What I'll say is the the sociological element of fundamentalism. Um, By the way, I have nothing against fundamentalists. Jesus was a flaming fundamentalist when it came to Scripture's accuracy. So, I'm not saying something's bad about... This is sociological fundamentalists who believe that if you mess around trying to give arguments to the unbeliever, you'll probably end up in unbelief yourself. If you read those books written by unbelievers, just think Johnny might end up leaving the faith. Of course, we don't teach them the defense of the faith in Johnny Lee's first year college, first year introductory philosophy course when he learns about the arguments against miracles from David Hume. And this room couldn't fill the number of parents that have said to me, why didn't he hear what you guys are talking about when he was in high school? This is one preaching moment. Teach apologetics here as early as you can. I teach it in junior high because they're polemical at that age. The Greeks understood this. You teach them when they want to argue. And the most annoying being in culture is the junior high student. (laughs) You can feed this. They love to argue. They love to discuss and debate the ideas and the defense of the faith. Do it early and do it often. The reasons we don't defend the faith are moral in that we believe that we'll get polluted or something terrible will happen to us or intellectual arguments not to defend the faith. There's a group of folks, 
uh, called presuppositionalists, generally of the Calvinist persuasion, who believe that because of the nature of sin, all these arguments you give unbelievers are just going to be perverted and twisted anyway. So why waste your time? The best you can do is give uh, kind of critiques of their own position. Tell them why they're wrong, not give them positive evidence for why Christianity is true. I think this is a critical strategic error. If I have an hour or you have an hour with an unbeliever, spend 95% of the time on the positive evidence that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. We'll do that Monday night with the lawyers. How that case is brought to an unbeliever. And believe me, this isn't sophisticated. Only lawyers can understand. I have 8th graders that can present this case. Okay, got them trained to be annoying lawyers when they get out of college. But that's the way it goes. Their parents aren't particularly grateful for this, but no, no. <laughs> that was a joke. Kind of. Anyway, um, the, on, on the uh, particular issues with respect to why people don't uh, defend the faith, the intellectual presuppositionalists say the nature of sin destroys that, uh, even the reasonableness of entering into dialogue with unbelievers. I think that's a misreading of the nature of sin and total depravity. Um, and presuppositionalists make very poor apologists in dealing with the defense of the faith. You need to take non-believers' objections Seriously, with respect, we need to study those to show that respect that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3.15 and be about all things to all men. Finally and fourth, how to defend the faith. How to defend the faith. Only a couple of things to mention. First, obviously, to focus on mere Christianity. Focus on the Gospel. Focus on the central claims of Christianity. And secondly, be prepared to present that evidence. Now, this does not mean every, or every discussion with an unbeliever should begin with, doubtless you have problems with the virgin birth. Not a good starting point. Okay? No, no, actually I didn't until you raised it as an issue. Now I really do have a problem with the virgin birth. Life is too short to be annoying to the maximum number of people. You don't start with apologetics. You start by presenting the gospel. And in this day and age, more and more people don't even know the first thing about what the gospel is. Because the gospel is so little talked about in the church. There's the pathetic thing if ever there was. The place where you think it would be being presented isn't today. And the unbelievers have all kinds of wacky views of what Christianity teaches. It essentially is another ethic. It's a better life. You get smiley people on TV. And smiley people tell you your life will improve X, Y, and Z if you just believe. If you just do that. It's presented as another therapeutic approach. We defend the faith with evidence. We point outside of ourselves like John the Baptist did. We must decrease Talk about your sin and your rebellion will have more unbelievers interested in listening to you that you really get it. And talk more positively of pointing to Christ, not just Christ in His teaching office, but Christ in His saving priestly office, as we call it 
in systematic theology, particularly Lutheran dogmatics, but it's okay. You, you all are more Lutheran than you know. Um, that's just the way the 39 articles are. Glorious, gloriously Lutheran articles. Yeah, they really are. What can I say? Um, you point to Christ in his priestly saving office. People will have no problems with you when you point to him in his teaching office. That's not where the apostles got hacksawed and thrown out of town. It's when they pointed to him in his saving office. Use evidence. Assume the least and, as we said, prove the most. <clears throat> okay. I think I have time for a couple of questions. If anyone has a couple of questions. Go. Oh, you got to go? Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay. That happens so often to me. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dean. Could you keep the car running out there? <laughs> we have a couple of minutes if anyone would like to ask a question. And we'll have more of this Monday night. I highly recommend. Monday night is the lawyer's case for Christianity. But we are going to develop and build the case for Christianity with an unbeliever that, as I can say, can be done by an eighth grader. But it involves um, understanding what the fundamental case is and dealing with, for example, the issue of the reliability of the New Testament. We'll deal with that Monday night with lawyers. Craig, uh, yeah. <clears throat> I guess... Sometimes I face friends that say, I'm, I'm a Christian, I believe Christ died for my sins, but I'm not interested in going beyond that. I don't want to be in a small group. I don't want to share with anybody. I, he's my Savior, and that's that. Yeah. Well, um, many times the people that, that are concerned about that, <clears throat> here's the main concern. The main concern is somebody's going to ask a question you don't know the answer to. What do I do? This seems so intellectual, academic. You tell them you don't know the answer. That's what you do. You get humiliated. And you say, that's a very good question. You don't have to know all the answers. You have to be only willing to say, that is a good question. I've never even thought about that. Um, and to somebody who says, I don't really care, it's usually behind that is a fear that if I, if I start talking to unbelievers, I'm going to get twisted up. I'm going to fall on my face. And I'm going to make them worse off than they are now by messing up the gospel. The best I can do is hopefully bring them to church to hear the dean preach or somebody else in the pulpit who will get the gospel to them. So what I recommend to them is, look, start reading in the defense of the faith. We have 2,000 years of defenders of the faith. No objection, essentially, no objection we hear today, essentially, is new. There was an age of the apologists in the 4th and 3rd centuries after Christ who were called the age of the apologists. Augustine, others, Jerome, Irenaeus, Tertullian, others who dealt with these questions in detail. So people like that, I say, work with them. Give them some basic stuff to read to equip them in the defense of the faith. It's not something that's optional. It's biblically commanded. And you'll find the more you read, you'll find the Lord brings somebody with that particular problem in your, uh, into your world. It's uncanny how this happens. Um, anyway, a couple, let me mention just one other thing. The couple books back there to, to mention, uh, one is The Defense Never Rests and the other is Religion on Trial. Um, Defense Never Rests gives them the theoretical basis for apologetics. Religion on Trial gives the evidence. And there's a book back there I brought along uh, called Richard Watley, A Man for All Seasons. I brought it here 
I wrote it probably 10 years ago, but I brought it here particularly because Watley was an Anglican archbishop who did apologetics profoundly well in the 19th century. He refuted Hume in a classic work that he did uh, that dealt with David Hume's objections based on miracles. And Watley did this in the early 19th century. He wrote a tour de force in apologetics that is reprinted at the end of that book. It's got a little history of Anglicanism uh, in there. Uh, talks about the storm of the 19th century. Talks about some issues with uh, theology and defense of the faith. But that's another one. Anyway, uh, so you can find that back there. Yes, sir. Craig, your opinion on the supposedly attack on freedom of religion in this country today as a lawyer. Yeah, the attack on freedom on re of religion. Um, a couple things that I, I would say. What, I w what I'm interested in, in terms of, the, of, of religious freedom, I'm interested in a level playing field. I'm, I'm not interested in special favors. This may not be popular, I'm not sure, but I'm not interested, particularly in California, in having a teacher that is not capable of teaching my child to read, praying with them. Okay? I think we want to have a level playing field. The Constitution understands that, provides for that, protects us against hostility to a religious position and discrimination against it based on its content. But I'm not interested in special favors for the Christian church in America. It has special favors in places in England, and that's been used for God's greater glory in many ways. But in America, that is not to be. I just don't want the hostility the discrimination uh, against the Christian position legislated in. Because I think if we have an e a level playing field, uh, the truth will surface and the defense of the faith can go forward. If I have a choice of making my culture more moral or give it more freedom to preach the gospel, I will opt for more freedom to preach the gospel. As uh, Machen, I think it was, said, um, there is a town, he begins a sermon uh, Satan's perfect town. The streets are clean. Everyone acts moral. There's prayers in the school. Everything is perfect. Just one thing. No Christ. Um, for me and mine, we'll err on the side of Christ being preached, people being saved on this earth, and not trying to turn this earth into the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Thank you, Thank Craig. you. Sorry. <laughs>